I just want to start just uh, by thanking uh, Miriam and our fantastic band all year long. They just bring amazing music to us, do they not? Yeah. Yeah. It is a, uh, it's a blessing to have such a wonderful, talented group of people who are willing to serve in that way. And also, uh, behind the scenes, all the people that make it happen, our wonderful sound engineer, Lo, and Lisa, and Tim, and all those people who make sure the media happens. Let's give them a hand. They do a great job. Amen. Yeah. It is, um, it's all about the theme. A lot, of, a lot of things happen to do a service. You may not even be aware of all the things that happen. But uh, we're delighted you're here. Today is uh, the other side of Christmas, uh, the day after. This is also called Cannon Sunday. Does anyone know why it's called Cannon Sunday? Because you can shoot a cannon off and not hit anybody in the sanctuary. <laughs> so go ahead and give yourself an extra pat. Go ahead and pat yourself on the back and say... Extra credit Sunday. <laughs> extra credit. You get extra credit for coming today. Like, this is like the makeup exam. Like, if you missed a Sunday, you... <laughs> Seriously, this is the... When I was an associate pastor, this is the one Sunday they let me preach. <laughs> they were like, he can't do too much damage on that Sunday. So. Anyone here overspend on Christmas? Anyone here overspend? Anyone Dreading the uh, credit card bills. Did anyone here overeat uh, yesterday on Christmas? I'm like 4,000 4, calories in yesterday. I'm like, oh, maybe I'm overeating at this point, maybe. Yeah, the, the majority of Weight Watchers gets their sign-ups right now. The athletic club will be very full in the next month. February, not so much. So, welcome to the other side of Christmas. The other side of Christmas. I was looking at stories, you know, Christmas is about you know, good times and happiness, and, and yet there's also the other side of Christmas, the underbelly of Christmas. And uh, I don't know if you heard about this, but there was a, this, a couple of news stories that caught my eye. There was a stranger that put $1,600 in gold coins in the Salvation Army kettle. Now, the Salvation Army was very excited about this, as you might imagine. Uh, that's quite a generous donation. Uh, and they, were, they, they even printed a story, and they were, it was great. Turns out that they, uh, the local Salvation Army began getting calls about those gold coins because those gold coins were stolen. <laughs> or how about this? There was a, now, we, don't, we don't relate to this because what is it today? 85 and balmy, right? 85, yeah. It's tough, right? It's a tough winter here in, in Corpus. But uh, up north, where it's actually cold, there was a, a boy who fell through the ice. Uh, I think this happened in Minnesota in a lake. And a man jumped out of his car. He saw it happen. He tore off his jacket. He crawled out on the ice. He saved the drowning boy. Happy ending, right? And it's great. He saved. Merry Christmas. Unfortunately, while the man was out saving the young boy on the ice, uh, a person in the crowd uh, <laughs> of onlookers uh, went into his car and stole his jacket, which had the envelope, which was containing his Christmas bonus. There you go. There you go. The other, these are feel-good stories that I've shared on this day. That was a joke. Okay, anyhow. So today I want to talk about the fourth king at Christmas time that nobody ever really talks about. Uh, and we all know about how many kings we usually talk about at Christmas time. Three. Now, uh, how many of you have uh, something like this. I stole this from our wonderful decorations over there on the table. Uh, this is one of, the, uh, one of the kings and also known as one of the three 
wise men. Now, were there three wise men? No. The Bible, that's what we think, right? We just sang it, right? Three wise men. There, there were probably over 60 wise men and, uh, that were journeying to see Jesus. It was probably a whole bunch of them. But uh, we always... And how many of you have one of these wise men, one of the three wise men, like we do, uh, around the nativity scene? Wrong. You're wrong. You shouldn't have them out yet. Because the wise men did not show up until about two years later after Jesus was born. So Jesus literally is about two years old when these guys finally show up. So get them out of your nativity set. I'm going to be checking next year. (laughs) Um, Anyhow, but we're going to be talking about the uh, fourth one that shows up. Now, it's interesting because when my kids were little, they used to like to add certain... Have you ever seen kids will add certain things to the nativity sets? And so Jacob is here, and so Jacob may not remember this, but Jacob, when you were about four years old, we got you this giant T-Rex, and he made this growling sound with batteries, and you thought he belonged at the nativity scene. And when we removed him, you cried, so we put him back, and we had the T-Rex all that Christmas right there at the nativity scene. Now, believe it or not, there actually was a T-Rex in Christmas. There really was a monster Uh, We all know about the three kings from the east. They're called wise men, right? And they bring gifts of gold, right? That's a gift fit for a king. Uh, They bring frankincense, and they bring myrrh. Myrrh is a strange gift, but what was myrrh brought for? It's used for embalming a body. So it was brought to symbolize that Jesus would die for us, right? Um, And it's a happy ending. The fourth king, does anyone know who the fourth king is? The one the Bible talks about, the T-Rex at the sing. The fourth king is, of course, it's on the screen. I think it's there. His name is King Herod. And he is a real-life Grinch of Christmas. Now, this message today is going to have a a lot of history. So if you want a lot of history, say amen. amen. If you don't want a lot of history, you can leave now. We've taken the offering. It's okay. That's a joke. In Matthew 2, 8, and the reason I want to share about King Herod is because when the Bible was written, everybody would, everything I'm going to share with you about King Herod, when, when, when it was written, they knew this about King Herod. But we don't know it, and so we miss some of the, the nuances and, and the, the um, history of the significance of what happens with King Herod. So in Matthew 2.8, we read about the words of King Herod to the wise men. King Herod says, the most powerful man in the world, at least on paper, go search diligently for the child, Herod said to the wise men. And again, we don't know how many wise men that was. But when you found him, come and bring the word that I may, what's it say? Worship him. Now, this is a sham. This is hypocrisy. Herod speaks with forked tongue. Herod had no intention of worshiping anything but himself. Who was Herod? Who was the fourth king? This really is the story of the man who tried to kill Christmas, right? It's a strange and bizarre tale. And it really, when I preach this message today, you'll say, is this a Christmas message? Because we're still in the Christmas season. And it really is. 
Um, but it doesn't sound like Christmas, right? Because Christmas is candy canes and sparkling lights and tis the season to be jolly and joy to the world and hark the herald angels sing and Santa Claus is coming to town and I'll be home for Christmas. But at Christmas time, not everyone was happy, particularly King Herod. He is the real Grinch. He's the Ebenezer Scrooge who stole Christmas and he would prefer that Christmas never happened. And this is not make-believe. What I'm going to share with you today is true. It is authentic. And how do we know this? Not just from the Bible, right? The Bible is a historical document. But we also know it from other historical figures, particularly a historian named Josephus, who we can read about. You can read what Josephus wrote. All right. So, are you ready? That was not very enthusiastic. All right. Herod is not a very nice man, and the story is told in Matthew 2. Now, here's just a little background. In the year 47 B.C., Herod the Great, as he's called, is only 25 years old. He's just been named the governor of Galilee, and that's a high position for a young man. The Romans put him in place, hopefully to pacify the Jewish people. And he does so in a barbaric way. First, he captures one of the Jewish leaders, Ezekias, has him executed. Later, in order to appease the Jewish people, he marries into a Jewish family, a family called the Hasmoneans, and his wife was named Marianne. Hmm. We have a Marianne in our church, no relationship. All right, anyhow. In 40 BC, the Roman Senate named him, what's the title? King of the Jews. What did Jesus have on his cross when he was crucified? What was the title? King of the Jews. Now, it was a title the Jews hated that they gave to King Herod because he was not a Jew by birth, and he was not a Jew by religion. So as the years rolled by, Herod proves to be a very cruel man. Like all tyrants, he held on to power by brutality. I mean, think of Stalin. Think of Saddam Hussein, think of Hitler, and then you're in the same category. Are you with me? And over the years, he killed many people. He killed his brother-in-law. He killed his mother-in-law. He even killed his own wife. It was the murder of his wife that really drove him mad. He killed her because he thought, and he thought all these other people were a threat to his power, but he He killed her when he was 44 years old, and even though he lived to be 70, her murder was really the beginning of his end. Above everything else, Herod the Great was called really Herod the Killer. That was his nature. He killed out of spite. He killed to stay in power. Human life meant nothing to him. And the great historian Josephus called him barbaric. Another writer in history called him the Malevent Maniac, and another one named him the Great Pervert. These are not things you want on your tombstone. Amen? His best character can be seen really in the year 7 BC. Herod is an old man. He's been in power for 41 years. Uh, He knows he doesn't have much longer to live. Word comes that his sons are plotting to overthrow him. His sons can't wait for him to die. and They want the inheritance. So they are his sons by his late wife, Marianne, whom he already killed. He orders them put to death by strangling. How nice. Caesar Augustus once said of Herod, 
it is safer to be Herod's pig than his own son. Actual statement. So when you hear King Herod in the Bible, everyone in biblical times knew all of this. Is this making sense? All right. So think about this. He kills his wife, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law. He kills both his sons. Among hundreds of others, killing is what Herod does best. Now, of course, the wise men say, we came to see the baby. And now two or three years later, Herod the Great, the king of the Jews, is actually slowly dying. And Josephus describes his death as kind of a foul distemper. He might have had syphilis, we really don't know, but his body is racked with convulsions. His skin is covered with sores. He's rapidly losing his mind, but he is still the king. And one day, word comes to Jerusalem that some of the visitors have arrived from the... Where did the wise men come from? They came from the east. Right. And they had a, a sort of... They're sort of strangers. We really don't know a lot about the wise men. We know they came from the east. They're magi. They're basically astrologers. They were priests of an oriental religion who practiced astrology. In Persia, they were considered powerful men. They journeyed across the desert, and they had an interview with Herod, and there was more than three. But the most important thing uh, to Herod was not who they were, but what they asked of Herod. And this is what they asked of King Herod. Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Now, Herod's title is what? So he hears this. He's like, wait a minute. My title is king of the Jews, and now there's someone else who's been born that has my title. Do you see why Herod got a little upset here? Hello? Is this making sense? We saw his star in the east. We're astrologers, and now we've come to worship him. We don't know exactly who the wise men are. There's a lot of guesses. There's a lot of scholarly work that's been on. They're most likely from Persia. There were Jews in Persia. The Jewish people would have talked about the ancient prophecy of 750 years. It was prophesied before Jesus showed up. So they would have learned about that probably. Uh, What was this star they saw? We don't exactly know, but Herod doesn't know either. But he figures he better find out. They were looking for someone born king of the Jews. How could that be? Herod was the king of the Jews. He was not born that way. He had to fight and kill to keep that title. So what were these men talking about? So when Herod hears this, he gets all shook up. He gets very, and scripture says, the Bible says, when Herod heard this, he was disturbed. The word disturbed means to shake violently and to have no wonder. Have you ever, gentlemen, have you ever uh, had your wife disturbed? Have you ever disturbed your wife? It's not good when they're disturbed. Okay? So, at this point, Herod had subdued all his enemies. He had killed all his foes. He had killed most of his family. And he was wanting to die triumphantly. Herod is an old man when Jesus is born. And these strangers come with a strange question, and they're like, we hear that there's someone else that has your title. And so Herod thinks, this is no time to rest. Even though I'm an old man, I have one more person to kill. 
And Herod was shaken. Herod was not a particularly religious man. Now, Herod did give money to the Jewish people to rebuild their temple, but only to appease them. That's as far as he, he went. Herod knew the Jews were looking for a Messiah that God would supposedly send to them to save the world and reign as a king. But Herod doesn't take that too seriously. He called together, Herod calls together all his chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asked them, he says, where is this king of the Jews that was born? He's born king of the Jews. And they say, where was Jesus born? You know where he's born. It was in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet had written. But again, we see this in Scripture, Matthew 2, 6. And if we don't pay attention to the outlining history, we lose this. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people Israel. So Jesus is coming from Bethlehem. Do you get this? Is this making sense? I'm trying to teach this. Suddenly things are getting serious. Maybe these strangers are onto something. What if the baby is the Messiah? What if he really is the son of God? Herod is getting afraid here. And the wise men asked, where is this baby born of king of the Jews? And the scribes have confirmed now the Old Testament prediction that he's born in Bethlehem. So Herod's putting two and two together, and he's thinking, I need to make sure I kill this baby. So would Herod try to kill the son of God? Absolutely. All tyrants are cowards at heart. They rule by force. And one thing they fear the most is a force greater than theirs. And if the Messiah had really come, that meant that Herod was now ruling in opposition to God. Therefore, he must kill this baby, and he must do it now. That's what Herod's mindset is. Now you see why we don't preach this message on Christmas Eve. <laughs> Anyhow, so just, just another tidbit, like if you read about Herod, if you study him, he's such a fascinating, horrible, brutal man. He had a an opponent of his who was also a friend of his. Sort of like today, politicians might be Republican and Democrat, but privately, they get along, they go to lunch. They go. So Herod had this sort of relationship with a man named Astrobilus. And Astrobilus was sort of a, a political counterpoint to Herod. Herod invites him, as he had done many times, over to a swim party at the king's palace in the Jordan River. Herod bribes Artabus' private bodyguards. He bribes them to drown him and drowns him in the river and then pretends it's an accident and then has a beautiful funeral for him, all paid for by Herod. So this is Herod. Are you with me? This guy is pure evil. So there's three wise men, right, and one old fool. So Herod hatches a clever plot. And we pick up the story... All this is background to what's happening in Scripture. And again, people that read the Bible would have known this. Matthew chapter 2, verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found from them the exact same time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me that I may too go and worship him. Now, why didn't the wise men wise up to Herod's trick? Why should they? they? They had no reason to suspect his motives. They didn't really know. They're from the east. They're not from this area. 
Now, another thing you could say is, why didn't Herod send troops? He could have sent troops to Bethlehem. He could have, but that would have attracted a lot of attention, and his whole job was to appease the Jewish people. So finally, you ask, if Herod was so concerned, why didn't he go to Bethlehem and see for himself? Now, that's a good question. Why didn't Herod go? Well, perhaps because he didn't want to come face-to-face with a king from heaven, and that would be too much. He would be forced to make a decision about his own life. See, if you really go and journey and, and, and make it a point to seek out Jesus in your life, you know that if you find Jesus, then you have a decision to make. What are you going to do with Jesus when you find him? Are you going to walk away? Are you going to invite him in your heart? Are you going to try to follow him? You understand what I'm saying? So he sent wise men and said, and you know the rest of the story. The star miraculously reappeared, led them to the exact house at two years old, and they find this two-year-old Jesus, and they bow down, and they worship him, and they give him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, some people think those gifts Mary and Joseph actually used to help pay for their, their time in Egypt, their time away from uh, their homeland, right? It, it might have uh, helped them to uh, sustain themselves. So who's the dummy now? Now, just before the match, I step off the center stage and drift into the twilight of history, because we don't ever hear again from the wise men. We're told one last fact about them. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Now, you think about the biblical story. There's a lot of dreams happening in the Bible story, right? You remember Mary comes to Joseph and says, hey, I know we've been dating. I know we're engaged. I know we're in love. But uh, by the way, I'm pregnant. But it wasn't from some guy. It was the Holy Spirit. And we know what Joseph's reaction was, right? Right. And he's, he's done. He's hurt. He wants to divorce her quietly. He's, he, he loves her, but he's torn. He's humiliated. He's got to reverse the wedding invites. Everything's a mess, Right? And yet, he is told in a dream to stay with Mary. I don't know what kind of dream that was. It must have been an amazing dream. But here's what I'm I'm saying. So now the wise men are told in a dream. So here's an important point. This is why I'm raising this issue. God speaks to us in a number of ways, dreams included, right? God is still speaking, but the question is, are we listening? Right? God speaks through other people. God speaks through circumstance. God speaks through songs that the band might play. God speaks through other people in your life. God can speak to you through a prayer journal. God can speak directly to your thoughts. God can speak right now. God can speak through a sinner like me. God can do anything God wants. But we still have a decision to make. Do we hear it and do we accept it? Amen? All right. So the Magi, they go east. Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, they are, of course, heading west towards Egypt. And Bethlehem is a sleepy little country village. Meanwhile, back at the palace, Herod's rubbing his hands in glee and thinking, how stupid are these wise men? They're going to come back and tell me where this baby is so I can kill this baby. But Herod turns out to be the fool. 
They don't come back and tell him anything. They're gone. His whole plan boomerangs. And the Bible says that when Herod realized he was tricked by the wise men, he became enraged. Again, the trickster's been tricked. The con man's been conned. The liar has been double-crossed. So then what does Herod become? He becomes what historians call the butcher of Bethlehem. Again, this is the dark side of Christmas. And before I tell you what happened next, here's a few facts to keep in mind. Herod is very old, very sick. Herod is slowly losing control of his kingdom. He's dying and he knows it. He's angry over being tricked by the Magi. He still feels like he's got to do something about this mysterious baby that has the same title as he does. He's out of his mind with rage and frustration and fear and pain. He's insanely jealous. He's bloody killer by nature. And all of his instincts of a lifetime now come to full fruition. Keep all that in mind because all that's the only way you can understand what's about to happen next. In the history of the church, this is what's called the slaughter of the innocents. And after 2,000 years, we still remember Herod for this one act. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in his vicinity, in his vicinity, who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi, Matthew 2.16. So this is in the Bible. This happened. He lost his mind and does something worthy of Hitler or Stalin or Saddam Hussein. He orders the cold-blooded murder of male babies under two years of age. Now, you can think about this scene, soldiers going to house by house, breaking into Bethlehem in the dead of night, taking people's children and grown men killing babies. This is utter brutality. This is genocide. This is horrible. This is why we don't ever preach this on Christmas Eve. <laughs> Through the streets they go, killing every baby boy, killing all night long. They don't miss one. They do their job well. By morning, the slaughter is over. The soldiers are gone. The babies are dead. And the scripture talks about this. The, the women cry out, and their cries will not be answered. And the mothers will refuse to be comforted. Their children are no more. And could Herod have done this? Absolutely. It's consistent with everything we know about Herod. And it's how he stayed on top for 41 years. But then it becomes the end of the line. Because back in Jerusalem, Herod leans back on his couch and he hears the glad news. All the babies are dead. He can rest easy. He has killed his last foe. The Bible concludes the story by noting the death of Herod in verse 19 of Matthew. Josephus says, the historian Josephus said that when he died, maggots had eaten away part of his body while he was still alive. He died in agony, insane, tormented, and delirious. And the scripture says when, when he died, when Herod died, they buried his body in a grave not far from Bethlehem. Not long after that, Mary and Joseph, who were hiding out, fugitives on the run, and they come back with baby Jesus returning from Egypt, settling in the Galilean village of Nazareth, where Jesus rose up. So this is the real Grinch of Christmas. This is the man who really tried to kill 
Christmas. He almost did. Herod the Great slaughtered the infants of Bethlehem, but he didn't get the one that mattered the most. God saw to that. He murdered thousands in his lifetime, but he couldn't kill the most important person of all. Now, all this, I realize this is a lot of history, and a lot of you are like, boy, this is a lot of teaching, and when are we going to get to the feel-good stuff? (laughs) But really, what this raises is there's a couple ways of looking at Christmas, two ways. And there are still people that live this way. Herod refused to submit his life to a higher authority. Everyone in this room, everyone watching online, you have a higher authority. That's why David said, you know what? The Lord's my shepherd. A lot of other people have other things as their shepherd, money, pedigree, education, your background, uh, your 401k, that might be your shepherd. But for David, he said, the Lord's my shepherd. And we all have to make a decision if we're going to submit to a higher authority in our life or not, or if we're just going to be our own authority. Herod was a tyrant. He had no regard for God and no regard for humanity. And some people still live this way today. Some people never make it to step one in the 12-step program, which is admitting my life is unmanageable, surrendering my life to God, admitting that my life's a train wreck without the train, without God. Carl Jung said it best. Modern man, modern man can't see God because he doesn't look low enough. Think about that. How do we see Jesus washing the feet of the disciples? Right? Serving others, growing up humble and poor, dying a criminal's death, complete humility. And if you are looking for God there, you'll see God there. But if you're looking for God somewhere else, you won't see God. How often do we miss God because we don't look low enough? So Herod's rule ended, and he ended alienation from his enemies. He did not have many family and friends, and Herod knew this. Herod knew that no one would be crying at his funeral. So guess what he did? He left orders in his will that soldiers would round up the most popular and well-known citizens in his community and, and for concocted crimes and would kill them, and they would have the funeral along with Herod so that people would be crying at his funeral. That's evil. Amen? So the goal here today is don't be like Herod. There's a character in Victor Hugo's novel. You should read Victor Hugo. Great, great author. And the, ta- the toilers of the sea named Clauber. And Clauber is a great character in that he's a fallen character. And he wishes to rob a whole shipload of people. So he steers the ship into a sandbar and gets everyone off the ship into lifeboats. And he points to a nearby island and tells them, take your boats there. And he says, there a ship will rescue you. And he's wanting to appear the hero, so he stays back with the ship. But what he really wants to do is he wants to rob the passengers of their possessions. And so when the people are out of sight, he goes to their rooms 
and he takes all their money and he puts it on himself and he, he has all this gold and all this money and all these things weighing him down and he, he leaps off the side of the ship and his plan is to swim just a short distance to another island where he knows ships will pass by and they'll rescue him and he'll be a very wealthy man and the other people will be lost and will not be saved and he'll have all their money. So loaded with cash and gold, he leaps over the side of the ship and you can imagine what happens He begins to what? Sink. Loaded down with greed. And then he feels these tentacles grab him. And in the story, in the novel, it's a giant octopus that grabs him and pulls him down and drowns him. But it's really uh, symbolic of the octopus of greed, of power, of lust for those things. And he tries to throw off the tentacles, but another one grabs him and he throws off one. It's, great, it's told so great in the book. And Clawbert's greed results in his descent into a watery grave. King Herod was a man of greed as well. His world revolved around his own selfish desires. And his greed resulted in his descent to the depths of human cruelty. And that's not unusual when you refuse to submit your life to a higher authority. Think about this. We run into less powerful King Herods all the time. There are people who live as tyrants in this world. There are people who live as tyrants in the workplace, who run offices through fear and intimidation. There have even been tyrants in the church. We run into tyrants in every area in our life. When our lives are centered on our own passions, when we refuse to surrender our life to a higher authority, when we are egocentric and not God-centered, we tend to spoil every relationship. Are you with me? Yeah. There's a guy I know I've been, I've been counseling him. He doesn't come to church here, um, and he won't come to church here uh, because he doesn't want you to know about him because he's not a very good guy. To be honest, he's, he's struggling and realizing that. And he's been dealing with his, what he calls his difficult wife. But when I counsel him, I'm always like, it sounds like you're the difficult one. He decided to get a divorce. So he's paying good money for a lawyer here in town. And it's funny because, you know, most lawyers... <laughs> We don't have any in our church, so I can say this. Would you say most lawyers, when you come to them for a divorce, they're usually like, hey, sign up. How many of you say yes? Yeah, because it's money. So he told his attorney, after putting his attorney on retainer for $3,500, his side of the story. And then he said to his attorney, what's the best thing I can do? And the attorney, I'll give the attorney credit, because the attorney actually had integrity. The attorney said, I'm going to give you your money back, because the best thing you can do is you can apologize to your wife, quit being a jerk, and work harder and make your marriage work, and move back in with her, and hopefully she'll take you back. You know what he told me in counseling? I said, well, what did you say when the attorney said that? He said, I sat there in silence for a long time, and then I asked the attorney this question. What's the next best thing I can do? (laughs) That's a person that doesn't want to submit to a higher authority. 
That's a person that doesn't want to admit that they need God's help. That's a person that doesn't want to admit. And we don't come here to church, right, because we've got our acts all together, including me. We come here to worship and be altered at the altar. Amen? Absolutely. Herod rejected the best for his life and for the kingdom in which he reigned. He settled, Herod settled for a twisted, distorted life in which he lived in his own little world. He was his own God. And if there is a God that's definitely alive in our culture, it's the God of comfort. Right? I don't want to be uncomfortable. It's the God of greed, of selfishness. And here's the real point I want you to hear in all this story. So are you awake? Say amen. This is really important. Herod failed to see that the Bethlehem star was also for him. It was joy to the world, including Herod. Herod the Great did not have to go down history as a monster who slaughtered innocent children. There was hope for a better life, even for Herod. If only he had looked up, it was joy to the world, but ultimately we have to accept it. which is why the majority of the culture will not accept it. I've been sort of in awe this weekend. Um, Jacob uh, loves NASA. Jacob's studying to be an engineer, now a doctor. Uh, extending my career, as I mentioned, uh, as I pay for his school. Um, but have you been following the James Webb telescope that we just launched? Have you all seen this? It's amazing. It's incredible. We have launched as a country, it's replacing the Hubble telescope. We've launched the James Webb telescope, right? Okay, it's a 30-year project. In 1997, we estimated it would cost $500 million to build a telescope that we would then send out into space a million miles from Earth and communicate with it and begin to see things like the beginning of time. Hello. In 1997, it was going to cost $500,000,000. We just launched it. Guess how much it cost? $10 billion. Have you ever overspent on a project? <laughs> We're a little bit off. You should read about this. It's fascinating to me. It's now traveling. Right now, it's traveling. Jacob showed me on an app yesterday at Christmas dinner. Dad, look at this. The, the James Webb Telescope is traveling at 1.5 miles per second. That's pretty good miles per hour right there if you're traveling to see your family. I'll be there in a couple of seconds. <laughs> We're going to be able to see the beginning of time? Wow. We're going to be able to see the origin of, of when God lit the fuse in Big Bang? Are you kidding me? I'm pretty excited about this. I hope it unfurls like it's supposed to. They said if something goes wrong, we can't just run up and fix it. And the reason I share this is because I love reading about space history I love it. And ja Jacob Needleman was an observer of the launch of Apollo 
17 in 1975. I was five years old. It was a night launch. And there was a lot of cynical reporters all over the lawn. And he tells the story that they were all drinking beer and they were wisecracking and they're waiting for this 35-story high rocket to take off. The countdown came and then the launch. And the first thing you see, according to Needleman, is this extraordinary orange light, right, when you see the rockets lifting off. You can watch the, the James Webb take off too. It's, it's on video. And it's just a, it's, you can barely look at it because it's so bright. And he said, everything is illuminated with this light. And then comes this thing slowly rising up in total silence because it takes a few seconds for the sound to come across. And then you hear this whoosh as the rocket takes off. And he said, you can actually hear jaws dropping. And this is what he wrote. The sense of wonder fills everyone in the whole place. As this thing goes up, the first stage ignites this beautiful blue flame. It becomes like a star. But then you realize there are human beings on it. And then there's total silence. And people just get up quietly, helping each other up. They're kind. They open doors. They look at one another, speaking quietly and interested. They're suddenly moral people because the sense of wonder, the experience of wonder has made them moral. Star of wonder, star of night. Star of beauty bright. If only Herod had caught a sense of that wonder. If only he had been willing to journey and see that star. If only he had looked up. He might have seen that Bethlehem star and recognized it was his hope as well. If only Herod had surrendered himself to the God of the stars and the God of the child in Bethlehem stable. What a different story this world might be today. Herod the Great might have lived up to his name. His own people in his own world would have called him blessed. But the reason I share this all is not just because, hey, I don't expect many people to be here, so let me throw out a bunch of history. I know that's what you're thinking. Actually, Herod's story can be ours as well because we can refuse to submit to God We can ignore when God speaks to us, when God warns us in dreams, when God speaks to us through other people. People warn, people are warned, you know, by God about, hey, I want to be your shepherd. And some people ignore it. There are some of us that are not doing too well in our relationships with others. Our lives are fragmented and broken. And as a result, the spiritual side of our lives is suffering. So as we come to this year end and prepare for a new year, we need to remember that Bethlehem star shines for us as well and for Herod. He just didn't accept it. We have to accept it. It shines for us, but ultimately it's, it's our role to say yes to Jesus and then to make sure that he doesn't just stay a little baby, right? We've got to let Jesus grow in us this year. So I'm really excited because I've got a, an amazing... Um, series that I'm working on for January. Um, Really excited. I've done some crazy things, so it's going to be a lot of fun as we begin this new year. But I hope you'll remember that, hey, this star is for you and for Herod and joy to the world, but we have to ultimately surrender to it and accept it. And we surrender in little ways all the time, or we don't surrender in little ways. In some ways, it's easier to die a martyr's death one time than surrender every day to God. And we surrender a lot of ways. When someone asks for your time, when someone asks for your talent, when someone asks for your help, we surrender, we surrender, or we don't. 
Are you with me? Let's pray. God of grace, we give thanks for this day in which we sort of recall the history and the underside of, of the Christmas story, the other side of Christmas, and really the dark side of Christmas um, that Herod brought about. And Lord, I pray that we'll not be like Herod. I pray that we'll surrender to you, we'll recognize your presence, and that star shines for everyone, and that we'd have a sense of wonder about it, and that it would really evoke emotions of, hey, I'm not happy with who I am. I need to get right. I need to surrender to God and let God become my shepherd. I pray, Lord, that we'll enter this new year recognizing that you are a full-time God. And that some of us have had part-time commitment to a full-time God. And Lord, we don't want to be that way. We want to enter this new year fully committed to you. So God, give us hearts that are your heart. Give us love that is from you. Give us hope that is from you. And may your love help us to become loving. May your forgiveness wash over us may we receive your grace and may we surrender to your will and may we listen for you to speak to our lives through dreams through other people through circumstance through worship through songs for you are a God that speaks in many ways but we have to listen and surrender so Father help us to surrender as we begin this new year as we look towards 2022, I give thanks that you've led us and guided us through perilous times, unheralded times, and I do pray for the end of this pandemic and for health and vitality, and that most of us would live up to our names of being great, great for you and not for ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name, the one who taught us as we say now together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our day of bread. Forgive us our debts. We forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thy is kingdom, power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song.